We saw in 1840 a group of American scientists started a scientific establishment with the intention of improving their status. They changed the whole of science by setting up rules for recognition as a scientist. Until that time, a scientist was simply someone who was looking into God's creation, trying to find out the laws which governed it. Now, a scientist must have a qualification recognized by them from an institution recognized by them. A scientist must publish their work in a publication recognized by them, and only work published in their journals is recognized as science. If you publish a book, it's not recognized as science. If you publish in a magazine, in a journal, in anything not controlled by them, it is not recognized as science. A list of their sanctioned uh, public publications is sent to universities every year. The establishment pays a lot of money to the universities for every paper published in their journals by people from their institution. And it's a lot of money. The universities rely on that income. They only get their income if their staff publish in those journals. And every year they circulate a list of recognized journals when they require people to publish in, because it's only in their, those journals that they get paid. Now, this has gradually given the scientific establishment a huge amount of power over the whole of science. You effectively cannot teach anything that the scientific establishment does not approve of. You cannot publish anything the scientific establishment does not, uh, doesn't approve of. It's all in the hands of the secular authorities. And now they require, you must have a doctor of philosophy, a PhD, from one of their recognized establishments, otherwise you can't be recognized as a scientist. And you must publish in their journals. And their journals are censored. It's called a peer review. When you send in a paper to a journal, it cannot be published until it has been sent to peer reviewers who are um, sanctioned by the secular establishment and they go through your paper and if there is anything which, um, they, which is not approved of by the establishment, your paper will be rejected. You won't be allowed to publish it. You'll, you, you'll be told, well, you must change it to take this out or say this or say that or it won't be published. They have complete control over what gets published as science. 
And the people who are the reviewers, people like this. And remember what he wrote in the introduction to his book, Did Man Just Happen? Evolution is unprovable. It is unproven and unprovable. We believe it because the only alternative is special creation. And you don't think that people like that are going to allow anything through which does not conform to their atheist worldview. Now, they gradually took power over science. They didn't get complete control until about the 1950s, 1960s. But they were very rapidly taking control. Now, Henry Dale was a Nobel Prize winner in 1936, and he was a typical representative of the old science, which is demonstrated and dominated by Christianity, because Christianity was the only worldview under which science made sense. And he could see there was a problem coming in science. And he wrote, and science, we should insist, better than any other discipline, can hold up to its students and followers an ideal of patient devotion to the search for objective truth, with vision unclouded by personal or political motive, not tolerating any lapse from precision or neglect of any anomaly, fearing only prejudice and preconception, accepting nature's answers humbly and with courage, and giving them to the world with an unflinching fidelity. The world cannot afford to lose such a contribution to the moral framework of its civilization. Well, why did he say that? Because he could see coming a huge threat to this that he's talking about. And a few years later, we see one of the representatives of this scientific establishment, now in total control, Richard Lewontin, a very well-known atheist scientist, all the scientists allowed to be in high positions in um, universities these days are atheists. And he said something about science. Let's see what, what he says. We take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs, in spite of its failure to fulfill many of its extravagant promises of health and life, in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated, just-so stories, because we have a prior commitment, a commitment to materialism. It is not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary that we are forced by our a priori adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanation, no matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated. Moreover, that materialism is an absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. We can see a complete change from what Henry Dale said about 
about science to what the modern establishment says about if we look at what Henry Dale said on the left we're searching for objective truth and the only known way to do that is using the scientific method no toleration of anomalies why because anomalies show there is something wrong we accept nature's answers humbly and with courage we don't force our ideas onto the data we accept what the data actually says we have no political considerations and this is all important the moral framework of society and we compare that with what Lewontin with his commitment to materialism has to say there's no mention of truth there's not one word connected with truth because the establishment believes that truth does not exist they say even if you found truth you wouldn't be able to recognize it now truth can't exist because philosophically that would mean there had to be a source of truth and that implies a creator they can make extravagant promises well but often they're not fulfilled they have unsubstantiated just so stories hey, why well because if you've got nothing better to support your your theories with you just have to put up with unsubstantiated just so stories it can be counterintuitive it doesn't matter it can be mystifying to those who are not in initiated but whatever happens you cannot allow a divine foot in the door there must never be a mention of the bible of god of jesus christ or anything horrible like that and there are some things which are sacrosanct and some things which are banned the sacrosanct things are evolution atheism cannot happen without evolution billions of years evolution can't happen without billions of years you have to have a naturalistic cosmology with the worldview nature created the creation created itself there has to be naturalistic ways of doing everything and the copernican principle must apply the earth is not anywhere special and einstein's relativity is sacrosanct because einstein's relativity is the only way of countering all the evidence that the copernican principle is false and banned intelligent design and creation that is utterly banned and anyone who tries to publish in one of the journals you will have everything rejected a short time scale is totally un uh, unacceptable however much any uh, evidence anybody provides for it alternatives to naturalistic cosmology are totally banned however reasonable however superior to their naturalistic cosmology it is and of course geocentricity is banned that goes alongside the copernican principle and einstein's relativity and the idea that the earth is the center of everything is absolutely banned no matter what the evidence says now it used to be easy to define what science is in all my early textbooks back in the 
50s and 60s, almost everyone began in the introduction, science is that branch of research for knowledge which follows the scientific method. Now, once the um, scientific establishment had established full secular humanist control, that was a big embarrassment because the scientific method requires that anything which is disproved is discarded. It requires observations and measurements. You can't just have fairy stories, just so stories. You can't measure just so stories. And so they began to wage war on the scientific method. And um, if you're in your 40s and 50s, perhaps you will remember that war against the scientific method. And they used arguments like this. Well, the great scientists like you didn't actually use the, uh, the, the scientific method because, well, it can't work. It didn't work for Newton, so it can't work for anyone. You see, the story is Newton watched the apple fall from the tree and said, oh, well, there must be a gravitational force. So he sat there and thought out gravity. He didn't do any experiments. So he's doing what Aristotle did, and that's really the way science works. Now, that's simply not true. Newton said he, if he could see further than other people, it was because, because he stood on the shoulders of giants. He didn't do the experiments collecting the data, but he worked with all of Brahe's data. Brahe spent a lifetime taking measurements of the heavens, and he couldn't, he didn't have time to do the analysis and look for the patterns, the next step. Well, the next step, looking for the patterns and the observations, was done by Kepler. And he spent years of his life poring over Brahe's observations to look for the patterns. Newton then moved in at that stage of the scientific um, endeavor and then made a hypothesis to explain the patterns in those measurements. Now, he didn't do the previous work, but the scientific method does not require that it's all done by one person. He stepped in in the middle, and then he carried on to the end, because he had got a theory, and now the requirement is you think of experiments to test it. So, he did think of experiments to test it looking at the trajectories of cannonballs, for example, and also looking at the trajectory of uh, a comet, which Haley had observed, he thought it was going to come back, and so Newton got all the data, the observations, plotted out where and when the comet should appear, and said, well, look, if this theory is true, that comet should appear over there at this time, and he did. So Newton went through every step of the a scientific method using the work of other people for the first two steps. Their, uh, their claim that Newton, well, he, he was just like um, Aristotle, thinking up the things and 
it wasn't using the scientific method, it's all a complete lie to cover up their going away from the scientific method because their stupid theories can't stand up. And that raised a problem. Now you could no longer say that science is that branch of research and knowledge which follows the scientific method. But there was nothing they could put in its place. So the textbooks in the 70s, in the 80s, instead of starting off the way they had, they said, it is not easy to define science. Then they would waffle on about why it was difficult. And then they'd say, science is what scientists do. Yeah, what a satisfactory definition. Well, it was like that until Thomas Kuhn produced a very famous book about scientific resolutions, and he came up with a definition that really is true. He said a proposition is scientific if it is sanctioned by the scientific establishment. Isn't that wonderful? Anything that they sanction is scientific. That really is a very unsatisfactory definition. And everything to do with the scientific method is then abandoned. The first point, first step, observation and measurement. That's no longer required because the scientific science isn't about scientific method. Searching for patterns in the observations and measurements, that's not required because the scientific method, what if science now is what the scientific establishment approves of. Now, one thing that is very important to the secular scientist is origins. It was totally irrelevant to the scientific method. The scientific method assumes the creation was made by a creator. And it's perfectly obvious that that is the case. As the Bible says, the creator is to be seen in his creation. You look at that creation and there is no other reasonable alternative. Unless you are utterly stupid or you are mad, you must see the creation in his creation. It's just unexplainable any other way. But if you go against that and say, no, the creation created itself, then you've got to give some sort of justification. You've got to give some sort of explanation of how the creation created itself. And that is enormously important to secular science, even though it has nothing to do at all with real science. Real science, you follow the scientific method, it has nothing to do with origins. It assumes the creation is there Science is about finding out how it works. But it's vital to uh, secular science. And um, a theory of the origin of the universe is essential. Evolution is essential. And for that, millions of years are essential. And we can look and see what has happened to the scientific method if the, the crowning piece, if any observation contradicts a hypothesis, it must be abandoned and a new hypothesis sought. 
Well, the trouble is, it didn't take the scientific establishment long to find that all its uh, prized jewels were proved, they were proved to be worthless stones. It didn't take long to show that evolution was not possible. It didn't take long to show that their, uh, the theories they had for the origin of the universe were not tenable. And they didn't have another theory available. So they, they couldn't discard the theories they had, otherwise they'd got nothing. And now, they couldn't find any observations and measurements on origins, really. Who was there at the start of the universe? What, are, what measurements and observations can you take of, uh, of the origin of the universe, whatever the origin was? You can't do that. And if you can't find observations and measurements, you can't search your patterns in the observations and measurements. So, you can propose hypotheses that are not based on explaining any patterns. They're based on just those stories. So the whole of the scientific method has completely collapsed. Now, a typical example of this new, wonderful leader in science, Professor George Wald, he got a, uh, a Nobel Prize for his work in evolutionary biology. And he said something really, a really quite amazing admission. He said there are only two possibilities as to how life arose. One is spontaneous generation arising to evolution. The other is a supernatural creative act of God. There is no third possibility. Spontaneous generation, that life arose from non-living matter, was scientifically disproved 120 years ago by Louis Pasteur and others. That leaves us with the only possible conclusion that life arose as a supernatural creative act of God. I will not accept that philosophically because I do not want to believe in God. Therefore, I choose to believe in that which I know is scientifically impossible. Spontaneous generation arising to evolution. Now, of course, on the science, that would have been an absolutely impossible thing to admit. But under the secular scientific establishment, well, everybody agrees with that. And the theory that he is saying, he, what he has to believe, he believes in. The origin of species. That is the sort of Bible that these people have to believe in. But Darwin's theory, his paint pot genetics, which would allow this complete continuity of life from one thing to another, that was disproved by Gregor Mendel. Life is not composed of paint pot genetics, which you can just mix. It is composed of discrete units which should recombine in different ways, yes. But they cannot produce an infinite variety by simply mixing. They can produce a big variety of variations. But it cannot produce Darwinian evolution. Now, this has really been hid from the 
public. It was never really made public how science had changed so much. Their scientific establishment was in control and they, they didn't particularly publicize this. But it came out into the open when Thomas Kuhn, who was recognized as one of the greatest philosophers of science, wrote a book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, and he let out a principle which had now replaced the scientific methods requirements that if a theory is disproved, it must be um, abandoned. And in this book, he explains the uh, best in field theory. Now, he used a little few more words than this, but what in effect he is saying is, if any observation contradicts a hypothesis or theory, it remains valid until an acceptable materialistic alternative has been accepted by the scientific establishment. Now, this, the best in the field um, criterion, allows them to continue with a theory which they know has been disproved. Because another theory which is better has not been approved of yet. They fully understand that they are putting forward theories which have been disproved. But they can't abandon it until another one, which is acceptable to the scientific establishment, replaces it. So if you want to carry on publishing papers, and nowadays you have to, because they've brought in the dictum, publish or perish. You have to publish papers regularly in their journals, or you can't stay in your post at the university. You've got to publish every year. Got, they give you an allocated number of points you need to, um, to gain, and those points, depending on the papers, the papers you publish, and if you don't meet it, get out. So you have to publish. It doesn't matter whether you're, what you're publishing is true, useful, valuable. You just have to publish it. And the theories that you're allowed to work with are the ones that are accepted by the best, as the best in the field, by the second, uh, second humanist. So you may publish things you know perfectly well to be untrue, because you have to. It has to fit in with the best in field theory. You know, this, you know, it's known in science, but most of the people, they are led to believe, oh, science is a self-correcting uh, mechanism it is always improving itself because it has mechanisms to keep on track of the truth. Totally untrue. Totally untrue. Now, that idea, the best in the field theory, it came under distress uh, fairly early on. They had two theories on the origin of the universe. The first one was called steady-state theory, 
and in that, well, the universe has all been the same, but every now and then there is a hydrogen atom. It just appears out of nowhere. And the universe is so big that although this is a rare event, there is enough to keep the universe going, forms new stars. And so, they had two theories, the steady state theory and the Big Bang theory. Well, it didn't take very long for the steady state theory to be disproved. So, well, that didn't matter, they had the Big Bang, so that became the best in field theory. But when the Big Bang was proved to be untenable, well, they didn't have another theory available. So, the Big Bang theory carries on as the best in the field. But everybody knows as soon as you apply the scientific method to it, it falls apart. But you can't get rid of it. It remains valid even though it's totally disproved until an alternative has been accepted by the scientific establishment. And you have to stick by these rules. If you are in academia, you stick by what they say, otherwise there are sanctions against you if you're a junior, especially if you're junior, and you go against any of the, the dictates of the scientific establishment, you'll get fired straight away. If you make a suggestion on your Facebook page that evolution might not be true, that's enough to get you fired. You can have your qualifications and all. There have been plenty of people who have let it be known on social media or somewhere that they don't believe in evolution. Their, their qualifications have been annulled. The scientific establishment is so powerful, it has such a grip on the universities that he can say to them, you and all those qualifications, or else. Um, for more senior people, you're denied publication in approved journals. Now, if you don't publish in approved journals, you are not a scientist. Um, you can, you're denied research grants. If you don't get a research grant, you can't do any research. Research is expensive. And if you don't get a grant, you can't do any research. And at the very top of the scale, you're denied Nobel Prizes. Well, one of the first people that I've come across who bumped into this was Professor Herbert Dingle. And he discovered a very, very simple proof that relativity is false. And for 13 years, he tried to get, uh, get it published. He uh, went to all the top experts in relativity in the country, confronted them, and said, look, what are you going to do about this? After 13 years, they no longer agreed to even talk to him. Still not published. And he published a book called Science at the Crossroads 
in which he not only pointed out this very simple disproof of relativity, but he pointed out that if the scientific establishment is going to work like this and censor information on their pet theories, it's, it's heading for trouble. Uh, it became so widely known that Ben Stein, who was uh, a popular documentary producer, produced uh, a film, Expelled. It was in the movies for a while, over a, a few years ago. It was available in the video stores. And he went into this disgraceful conduct that's going on, where anybody who dares to go against the dictates of the secular establishment gets fired. And there are some well-known cases like uh, Robert Gentry, who was an expert in a field of radiometric analysis called radio-halo analysis, and he found that this analysis shows that the Earth happened very suddenly. It did not cool from uh, liquid um, molten rock over billions of years. It happened very quickly. He was thrown out of his job, and I don't think he was ever able to get another job in, in real science. Halton Arp, he was within the top 20 astronomers in the world. And his observations started showing him that the redshifts that the whole Big Bang, the expanding universe is based on, do not mean what they're supposed to mean. They don't indicate expansion. They don't indicate movement. He was banned from uh, using the telescope that he was working on. He was denied publication in the journals. He was denied uh, research funds. He had to take early retirement because there was nothing he could do. But he wrote a book, Seeing Red, in which he gave his results, his analysis, and his comments on the on what he calls academic science, meaning the scientific establishment. Uh, another very great scientist who ran foul of them was Fred Hoyle. He was probably the greatest scientist of the last hundred years. And he did amazing work on the carbon atom. He found that the carbon atom has energy states totally different from any other atom. And um, when he first uh, went to the laboratory, um, which, was, which could possibly check his theory, the person in charge um, said, oh, this is just too crazy. It's not worth giving uh, laboratory time to this. But he persisted and eventually said, all right, and to his amazement, he found that this really was true. The carbon, what? The carbon atom was an amazingly different, um, a, a different atom. This was something fundamentally new in science. It had to get a Nobel Prize. But Hoyle blotted his copybook. He pointed out that evolution is impossible. He pointed out that the current ideas about um, the origin of the universe is not possible. He showed that these things had 
to be governed by an intelligence. Without an intelligence, you cannot get life. Without intelligence, you cannot get the universe that we see it. And he wrote this book, The Intelligent Universe, A New View of Creation and Evolution. But the scientific establishment does not allow a new view. It only allows its best in theory. And so he was denied uh, research funds. He was uh, chased out of the establishment that he had um, raised at Cambridge University. It was the best um, astronomy unit in the world. And he was the founder of it, he was the head of it, and he was driven out. The power of these people is, um, is enormous. Now, his work had to get a Nobel Prize, but it was given to the head of the laboratory, which had originally said, oh, look, this is just too crazy, it can't be true. And eventually he'd said, oh, well, all right, you can do your testing by laboratory. He got the Nobel Prize because Hoyle couldn't. He blotted his copybook. Now, all you have to do in science is to stick within the secular humanist rules. Now, there's a very famous paper written by two physicists, Hafili and Keating. It was published in Science in 1972. They transported some atomic clocks around the world in airliners and claimed that these, the results they got proved Einstein's theory of relativity. Now, that is so important to the secular authorities, they very quickly got a Nobel Prize. It was published in uh, Science, which is one of the top two journals in the world. They got a Nobel Prize, but there's a man called Louis Essen. He is known as the Lord of Time. He knows more about time measurement than anybody else. He invented the atomic clock. And when he read their papers, he said, look, this is not possible. The atomic clock cannot give these results. He sent a paper on it to science. They refused to publish it. He sent his paper to other journals. They all refused to publish it. He eventually published it in Creationary Science, Creation Science Research Quarterly. And that is where a great deal of science is published, which is not allowed to be published in the uh, establishment journals. So being published here, it doesn't count as science. It shows that Hafili and Keating's measurements are just not possible, but it's not science, so nobody takes any notice. But there are a lot of people who read CSRQ, and one of them was um, Dr. Uh, A.G. Kelly, and he read it, and he went and researched and found the original uh, data. And he wrote a paper, of course not published by the establishment journals, so it's not science, but you can read this uh, on the internet. And in his abstract, he says, the original test results were not published by Hafili and Keating in their famous 1972 paper. They published figures that were radically different from the actual test results, 
which are here published for the first time. An analysis of the real data shows that no credence can be given to the conclusions of Hafili and Keating. But this is not in one of the establishment journals. This doesn't count as science. They carry on as top Nobel laureates, and their theory is their work is brilliant. It is real science. Um, Brian G. Wallace in the Fast of Physics extended Thomas Kuhn's definition of what is science to a proposition is scientific if it is sanctioned by the scientific establishment. Example, if the scientific establishment decrees that fairies exist, then this would be scientific indeed. Now, does that sound to you a little bit extreme? Not at all. Carl Sagan, otherwise known as Carl Pagan, wrote a book, Comet, in which he said, many scientific papers are written each year about the Oort cloud, its origin, its proper, uh, properties, its illusion, its evolution, yet there's not a shred of observational evidence for its existence. Now, just a minute, if there's not a shred of observation of evidence for its existence, how can there be any measurements, any observations? Well, this is the new science, which doesn't need it. Now, the Oort cloud is a story put forward to explain why there are still short-period comets. Because if you examine short-period comets, they can only last a maximum of 10,000 years. But we've still got some comets. And so this is brought in to explain it all away. Now, what's the difference between this and fairy stories? Well, the only difference I know is that there are some people who claim they have seen fairies. Okay, well, I've just got time to show you one typical paper. Um, it was uh, three famous astronomers. They were uh, observing a quasar, and you can see on the, on the left, they had, uh, you could see the quasar, it's this thing with the, the ring around it, and then over a period of a year, uh, of a week, sorry, it went through the middle stage where it starts to disappear, then it went to the final stage where it dis complete, disappeared completely, then it went back again, it started to appear, and again they had that final set of rings on their computer screen. And they explained this in terms of what they called an extreme scattering event structure. It's a, a cloud of electrons and protons and whatever. And this was reviewed in astronomy by Ferret Alphaskir. He said the most intriguing thing about the hypothesized structures, a point the authors of the report hesitated to emphasize, but did allude to. They knew all about it. These objects are not stable. If such an object could exist for even a moment, it would quickly dissipate. They could either attempt to explain the radio brightness changes and ignore the stability problem, or they could confront the st uh, stability problem and be unable to explain the radio variations. In other words, have no paper to write. So if they face what they know is the truth, can't write the papers, so they just hide it away. So we'd expect 
this author here to say, what are these fraudsters doing telling us lies in the top journals of science? This is in the very top journal of science. What does he say? Like all good scientists, they are able to tolerate the ambiguities in their model. And if you confront a scientist about this, saying, hey, look what's going on. These things are being published, they know that it's wrong. Well, the scientists will look at this and say, oh, well, this was published more than five years ago. It doesn't count. Why doesn't it count? Well, the rise of secular science has led to throwaway science. Science now can be supported and held for about five years after that. You don't look at it, you know it's been thrown away. It's been proved to be wrong, useless, worthless. That is the state of secular science today. 